Well, good afternoon, and welcome to Your DIY Health here on the Truth Frequency. No, no, no I'm not on the Truth Frequency. This is your Eurofolk Radio Network. What am I talking about? Eh, shows are blending together. Anyway, it is uh, Thursday, um, December 9th. Yeah, there we go. And I'm your host, Sergeant Jim Ram, retired. You can call me Sarge, and we're going to be talking history today, so I'm not going to go through all the normal disclaimers and whatnot. And I would say uh, check out the websites, yourdiyhealth.com and yourdiywealth.com. And that's Y-O-U-R-D-I-Y, like do it yourself. And then it's either H-E-W-A-L-T-H or W-E-A-L-T-H, whatever I'm spelling it, health or wealth, <laughs> .com. And uh, when you're on the wealth site, make sure you check out the Hyperfund tab. It could change your life. And... Uh, and on the uh, other side, on the well, on the health side, check out the uh, all the longevity products because they will definitely change your life. So uh, check those things out. But that's all I'm going to say for now. We're going to jump right into the show. Uh, we have uh, our guest Mike Gaddy and Robert Hudson with us today. <laughs> Welcome, guys. How are we doing? Doing great. Good to hear that Robert brought his own cheering section. <laughs> Yeah, he keep, he keeps those people with him all the time, don't you, Robert? <laughs> Come on, you're unmuted. Hmm. I guess Robert uh, lost his. Uh, he must be overwhelmed or underwhelmed or something. Some kind of whelmed. Yeah, either that or his uh, signal is bad. But uh, hmm. Yep, he just dropped off. Maybe I should try him on, see if I can bring him up here on Skype. And then we can try and do, well, there he's back. See if he gets unmuted and says something here. Okay, Jim. There we are. Gotcha. Okay. Okay, sorry about that. I, I don't know why you didn't hear me before, but I just hung up and clicked back in. So, okay, we're good now. All right, here we go. Fantastic. Welcome. Glad you're here. And uh, I'm going to let you two Thanks, go man. ahead and uh, kick things off with what we're talking about today. Okay. Well, uh, Jim, uh, earlier this week, uh, Robert and I talked, uh, which we do frequently, and uh, I said, uh, what do you think about a subject for this week with Jim? And uh, he said, thought for a while, and then he came back and said, well, what about the Tuskegee experiment, considering what's happening health and science-wise in the country today? And I thought it was a heck of an idea. Definitely. So, so jump on it, Robert. Oh, geez, not throwing it at me? Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will need you to jump in uh, periodically because you probably know more than I do, although I did listen to a five-part uh, really good podcast on um, Tuskegee Experiment. Uh, it's, on, it's on CastBox of all places. And I tried to send a link to Mike, but he couldn't get to play on his computer. Not know, don't know why, but I'll, I'll try to put that link in the, in the uh, uh, chat room if I get a chance. But just, um, you know, getting to the, the heart of the matter, uh, 1941, I think it really started before that. I think it goes back to the 30s. 1928. Uh, yeah, yeah. See, yeah, I you should have started this thing instead of me. But <laughs> at any rate, um, uh, the U.S. Department of Health is what they called it then. I'm assuming that is now today's Center for Disease Control, but whatever. It was a front, an arm of the federal government, and they uh, went into um, Tuskegee, Alabama, and wanted to um, see what the effects were on black men and syphilis 
that, that's interesting because it's my understanding, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, or anybody else, that penicillin was uh, in existence then or shortly thereafter, so it could have been easily defeated with penicillin. But instead of doing that, they allowed these men to become, and I think the number, I want to say somewhere around three or 400, may have been more than that, but I, I think it was around three or 400 black men in the Tuskegee area were in, uh, exposed to penicillin. And over the next four or five, damn or six decades, they were monitored, and of course people died off of this ugly disease. But one of the disheartening things about that is not only was the federal government intimately involved in that and purposely infected people with the disease, they knew it would ultimately kill them, although quite a few did survive. I don't know how, but they did live. Uh, it, it couldn't have been carried out like it was without the help of some black folks too involved in that. There was a doctor and a nurse, and the nurse was kind of a recruiter. She brought uh, men in to be exposed to this stuff. And so over time, they got progressively worse and worse and had all, all kinds of uh, ills and aches and pains or whatever. Uh, syphilis does to you. I, I hear it's a really painful, ugly you know, way to go. Like I say, it killed a bunch of people, but some survived. I, I, I don't know how they did, but some survived. So that was basically it. And it's just, like I said, it, it, it was and continues to be a very ugly state on our history as a nation. And uh, it parallels with um, uh, what's going on today with this coronavirus crap and injection they're trying to force on us. Uh, because uh, I truly believe that the phrase, the cure is worse than the disease, uh, uh, clearly applies here. And uh, for those who allow them to get injected with this damn needle, <laughs> ultimately you're going to wish you really had corona as opposed to what's in that needle, because I promise you, what that will do to you will be a way worse than the corona. I'll take the corona because I think I know how to get rid of it. But even if I didn't, I won't know part of what's in that needle. But that's what they did back in Tuskegee, Alabama, uh, starting in the 20s, I think. And I think Mike's right about that because the podcast didn't mention that. And it lasted well into the late 60s, damn near the early 70s, I think it was finally stopped. It was 32 and to I 72, can, according to Wikipedia, yeah. if you can believe that. Yeah. yeah. 40 years. And I, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think people started complaining about it and writing about it in the 60s. But then uh, when that was brought to the attention, the, the criticism and the problem and the people being upset about it to the attention of the people who were propagating it, they would always poop it and knock it down and say, no, this is research. We need to keep it going. We, we can't stop it now. So it continued through the 60s, well into the 70s. Finally, it was stopped. And uh, the survivors, I think it was maybe, yeah, I want to say a dozen or so, no, I'm just talking off memory here. Uh, they were given, I think the podcast said like uh, maybe 50 or 60 grand a piece, which is, enough, it was a seller from, from the government, which is an insulting amount of money. I don't know how you pay a man for six or seven decades of illness that was purposely put on him, but $60,000 or, or whatever that amount was is just a disgusting amount, a nauseating amount. And uh, then uh, President um, William Jefferson Clinton uh, did go on national TV and apologize. That was in, I'm thinking, the early 90s when he was in office and made some half-hearted, uh, weak-kneed, almost level apology. I don't know how you apologize to a man after he's been purposely uh, affected or infected with a disease that usually kills most people. And, and as if that apology in conjunction with the 50 or 60 grand or whatever they got would be anywhere near enough. What they should have done is not done it. 
immediately give them penicillin, but they didn't either. They, they wanted to experiment on these people. Now, uh, the nation's coming after everybody with this damn this damn deal. They want to get everybody. They don't care what you look like or who you are. They want everybody knocked down with this with this injection, this coronavirus, and this Omicron and all this other crap. And I'm telling you, <laughs> you take that needle, all I can do is pray for you. Because when they get done with you, you take enough booster shots, you wish you had Corona as opposed to what that needle is going to do to you. You will pray for Corona. Mike, any add-ons? Oh, well, uh, I'm trying to figure out exactly where to start, Robert, because I have a lot of questions. And my first question would be, why, why did they only pick black folks and why did they pick Macon County, Alabama? Yeah, um, that's a good question. My memory serves. Man, I wish I'd taken some notes. Dang it, I should have. Um, the first question is, I think that, and the podcast kind of addresses, they were saying that the white men in that area, or I guess anywhere, just wouldn't have allowed themselves to be injected. They just wouldn't have. They would have said, no, hell no. So that was one reason why, I think. And also, black folks back then, and somewhat now, were just easy picking. It was just easy to get them to go along. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the doctors I remember in the, podcast, in the podcast saying, this is one of the white doctors talking to a black doctor that was involved in it. Why do they trust us so much, given what history has done to us? And I don't remember what the, the guy said to him, but it was something along the lines of, well, I guess they're just kind of used to it or something along those lines. So that was uh, uh, why they picked a certain population. Now, as, as to why the geography uh, choice, you got me there. That I'm not sure. The podcast might have talked about that, but I don't recall what was said. Well, Robert, did only black men in Macon County, Alabama have syphilis? Oh, no, I'm sure anybody could have had it. It, 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 it can attack anybody. Would uh, the concentration of syphilis been any more intense in Harlem, New York? That's a very good question. Well, and I got to say, he, he, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> it's this crazy mind of mine, and I, you know, I, I probably should uh, try to find some way to slow it down sometime. But uh, when I, originally when I looked at this, the things that first popped into my mind, and I looked at this many years back, but one of the first thing, one of the first things that popped into my mind, is why did they pick Macon County, Alabama, and why uh, didn't they pick a northern city, which the population density was uh, just as great in Harlem or in New York City as it was in Macon County, Alabama, and uh, also you, you know you mentioned. Initially, when they started this project in 1928, and this uh -huh. had been funded, this was not a government-run operation in 28. It was funded by a research group. But uh, one of the things they found out that even the black folks in Alabama would not agree, the black males would not agree to participate in this thing for quite some time because of their lack of trust of the government. But then suddenly, in about 32, the government came along and said, okay, if you will agree to be part of our study, 
we will promise you free health care for life. Uh, okay. now, now, how does that relate to America today with Medicare? <laughs> Sucker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. And yes, even the black the black males in Macon County, Alabama, Tuskegee area were, were very hesitant and very reluctant to take this. But, they should have been. Uh, exactly, and as I'm going, I'm going to throw something out here and uh, bat it around, if you will. But I believe this was just a continuation of Reconstruction. Yeah, you could probably mm -hmm. argue that. Yeah. And look, if we're going to test out something, let's do it on these uh, on these Southern folks. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the the other thing that sticks in my mind is how critical when I was growing up. And when I was studying history and being taught history, how demonized we made uh, Joseph Goebbels in Germany, and uh -huh. we talked we talked about the medical experience in experiments in Manchuria by the Japanese, yeah, and the yeah. rape of Nanking, and we uh -huh. talk about we talk about these things, but we never look inward. And I believe that's a mindset in America today that is infecting us in this time frame because we never think that, you know, our government, no, that's our government. Our government wouldn't do that. Well, the hell they won't. Yeah. Here's all the proof you need. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. And then the studies, what they were doing the, when they first got started with the black males in 32 and they got 399 of them originally to agree mm. to this deal. Mm. And so they started treating them and the, uh, some of the men were saying, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure about these, these treatments you're giving us for this because they were giving them placebos. They told them that this mm. stuff was helping them that it was curing the disease when they had no intention whatsoever of curing the disease. Because that what they were doing is their scientific study was to study this all the way to death and then do autopsies on the bodies, yep. which they did. Yep. Yes. So here is, here's the point that really got to me was when some of the people said, well, you know, this treatment, I don't feel anything. Usually when I take medicine, I feel something. Uh -huh. And I'm not feeling anything. So what did they inject them with, Robert? Uh, that's another good question. Saline? <laughs> well, they decided if we're going to get some kind of bodily body reaction to where the people will think they're actually being medicated, we'll just go ahead and inject them with mercury. Oh. Good grief. So Place some of these people were injected injected with mercury, which is also deadly. Yep, it is. It is. Yes. So, you know, this is what really gets me when we look at boobas today. And I stop and I've stopped and thought about this on many levels. I remember when I was young and I we I was really a big supporter of, you know, I remember working my butt off during the summers to make enough money to buy a lifetime membership to the NRA. <laughs> Sound familiar, Jim? <laughs> Unfortunately. 
And back then, guys, it was a hundred bucks. Yeah. Well, man, That's I cheap. worked. I did a lot of work in the summertime to come up with a hundred bucks to buy. But I also remember at this same time in Boys Life magazine, which came with my scout membership, I bought a M1 carbine from an ad in the back. When I was 12 years old, I bought an M1 carbine. I got together enough money, got a per, um, money order, and I actually purchased an M1 carbine, which was shipped to my house mm. when I'm 12 years old. Now, people don't start telling me about the problem in America today is the availability of firearms. No, no, that ain't it. Because if I could get a uh, M1 carbine sent to my house when I was 12 years old without my parents even being involved. Mm -hmm. You know, well, don't tell me that it's availability of firearms because that shoots holes all through your argument. But so to speak. I also also remember at that time that, uh, you know, I would talk to people and, and, you know, and, you know, I was, you know, a teenager and I would say, well, you know, Gosh, guys, there, there will come a time in our country, just like other places, when when the police and will actually come around and, and take our firearms. And people were going, oh, that will never happen in America. That will never happen in America. You think? And I, and I remember saying, it already has. Yeah, yeah. And this, this was the 60s. And I, I remember a high school history teacher who's saying, what do you mean it already happened? And I said, are you familiar with the 1938 Gun Control Act mm -hmm. or the NG NGA, whatever they called it back yeah, then? The National I Firearms said, Act, NFA. Yeah, when they uh, outlawed automatic weapons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, people, the people who owned automatic weapons, those weapons were picked up by the police. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, ignorance reigns supreme. And, you know, when, when they finally write the final chapter on history of man, Americans are going to come off as some of the stupid SOBs in history. No doubt. Well, we probably they, have company around the world, but yes, I agree. Yes. They have fallen for trick after trick after trick after trick. And they just keep falling for the, you know, uh, here's the old thing. Remember old Dandy Don Meredith on Monday Night Football when he used to when he used to yell at uh, at the games and say, "Hey, keep running that play till they stop it." Yeah. <laughs> well, the government obviously listened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and these poor people, Robert. There was a black attorney. In 19, I forgot when it was, 1972, 1973, when he brought a $10 billion, no, I'm sorry, he brought a $2 billion lawsuit yeah. against yeah. the United States yeah. for, the, for the damages that was done. The podcast and the, is, uh, yeah, uh, yes. And the settlement yeah. was for $10 million. Mm -hmm. Which is So that's insulting. a big difference. Peanuts. Yeah, and uh, the people involved got somewhere between twenty and forty thousand dollars, depending on which one. 
Yeah, yeah, I couldn't remember the exact dollar figure, but you're probably spot on. Yeah. So you're going to tell me that you can just absolutely destroy someone, promise them that you're giving them medication when at the same time you're just it's an entire total lie mm-hmm. and then somehow mm-hmm. you believe yeah. at the end of 20 30 years of torture now robert this went on from 28 to 72 mm-hmm. yeah it did so it so did. don't tell me that these wonderful uh government employees just accidentally stumbled upon this and then when i saw someone classified it as a political mistake Yeah. What? It's always a mistake mistake. once they get caught. We goof. Yeah. Yeah. And and Robert, you were exactly right. There was this uh, gentleman, and he was a white gentleman, and he got involved in the program back in the uh, mid to late 60s, and he started complaining, and he was going to people, and from the mid-60s until 72, he was complaining uh, he would have been a modern-day whistleblower, and he couldn't get yeah. anything done until he finally got this lady reporter from the Washington Star, I think it was, mm-hmm. to carry mm-hmm. to carry this story. Mm-hmm. And w- and once the story came out, but I can promise you today, with uh, all of the censors in place, the truth of this uh, crap we're going through right now is never going to hit the mainstream media. No. No. No, it won't. Not not Corona. No, 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 no. So, no. where is this moral high ground we perch ourselves on, gentlemen? We have none. It's vapor. It's all perception. Built on sand. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I guess the thing that probably troubles me more than anything else, gentlemen, is the... Millions of people in America, I call Bubus Americanus, who actually believe you can fix this mess with more of what caused it. Yep. That is laughable. So, where do you want to go now, Robert? Uh, I don't know. I, I think we covered it uh, pretty much. Uh, the, the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, you even threw some things in that I didn't know or forgotten. Let's open it up and see if anybody in the uh, audience has anything they want to say about it uh, since we've reached that point. Um, yeah. Anyone out there interested in uh, giving a, any kind of input? Yeah, Jim, I got a comment. All right, Sammy, go ahead. Uh, Jennifer Daniels talks about how the distrust the natural distrust of the black population was against anything to do with what the uh, rulers came along with she says until I think um, the reason they got a hold of some of these guys was they were probably had military um, experience and then later on it ends up being the great society that really starts to um, get into their um, family and religious organizations and destroy the family and all the policies. And she says that's when the blacks started um, trusting 
them for the first time. That's a good possible. Um, something that just came to my mind is, um, and uh, for Brandon, uh, Jennifer Daniels is a physician who happens to be black. Um, she was pretty much run out of the United States because she was treating people and curing them uh, with uh, things other than what the American Murder Association puts out in their uh, uh, standards. So she is currently living in Central America and um, is very, very knowledgeable. And uh, she's actually co-authored a book along with Dr. Wallach uh, called uh, Black Jean Lives, Slave Quarter Cures. And uh, she's a very, very uh, good source of information for health information in general. But one of the other things that kind of kicked into me real quick is I wonder if this is just kind of a version of the Stockholm Syndrome, where after a while the captive begins to identify with and even protect the captor. And it, just from a, a loose perception of that idea, uh, I think that that might be it too. You know, people, when their their lives are basically run by by the government and all this stuff after a while, and they're told what to do, where to go, and all that kind of junk, all of a sudden, it just becomes second nature to follow directions. Yeah, I just, I just yeah. wonder yeah. maybe there's a little of that going on there. And and, and, and Dr. Uh, Daniels was never an order follower. She was always a questionnaire. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, and, and the medical uh, world already had a, a hard-on for her for doing what she was doing. But then the government uh, added piled on because she stopped the bond um, that was being floated wherever she was in, in, in Harlem or wherever she was working. And uh, when that bond got defeated, that's when she got put on the blacklist from the government. Yeah. Well, uh, Samuel, uh, here's a question I would have. Uh, I remember studying back when you could actually see them, the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1848, when Abraham Lincoln said repeatedly during those debates that the white man would always be superior to the black and uh, went into a great many reasons. Now, all of the modern historians want to get away from that. They want to pretend that that was just a campaign speech, that Lincoln didn't mean it. But what's the difference? Here we've had it between the time Lincoln said this in 1848 and 1928, 80 years later, when we're beginning a uh, program with just black men in Macon County, Alabama, has there been a departure in thought after we killed about a million people with uh, the Civil War uh, and we uh, freed the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, uh, you know, the 13th Amendment? Has the mind process, because of all of that, did the mind change between uh, Lincoln in 1848 and what the people were thinking in 1928 when they went to Alabama to use these people for test monkeys? No, probably not. And the old, old Lincoln was a pen pal of Karl Marx. And uh, he, yeah. they say one of the reasons that uh, Illinois is so screwed up today is because of Lincoln's influence there. Probably. Well, uh, one of the things to stop and think about, and that just, uh, that, that just really bugs me when I, when I saw that, that they focused 
not just on black men, which was egregious in and of itself, but only southern black men. And to me, that's why it was a carryover of the original Reconstruction. And there, the government's mindset about the black in America hadn't changed. And they Not proved much. it with the Tuskegee Institute. With the, I mean, Michael, with the Tuskegee experiment. M Michael, how many blacks fought for the South? Well, that Fine. is a considerable number that people don't want to talk about. One of the things, when I first saw this, and uh, I spent quite a bit of time when I was employed by the No Such Agency, I would spend my weekends and free uh, time, because I was a big Civil War fan, and I would travel to, because I was very close. I mean, you know, Gettysburg was a day trip away. Uh, Fredericksburg wasn't that far away. Uh, you know, uh, Fred, uh, uh, so many different places were really, really close. But I remember going out and spending some time in the Shenandoah Valley. And I remember going into the archives in Winchester, Virginia. And at that time, there was a, uh, you know, it just absolutely amazed me. Winchester, Virginia changed hands over 50 times during the Civil War. Now, to be a resident of Winchester, that must have been a real, you know, you got up every morning and said, who's in charge today? But in 1862, Stonewall Jackson takes the town of Winchester. Now, there were a lot of wounded that were in private homes, both north and south. And the head of the sanitary commission at that time for the north and the sanitary commission was the hospital corps but at that time the name was sanitation commission so the head of the sanitation commission was in winchester and he was there as a doctor working with the wounded and stonewall jackson goes into the house where he is and he informs him sir you are not a prisoner of war you treat your people, and this is documented, folks, it's in the Library of Congress. He said, treat your people, and if you would be so kind as to treat a few of those in the butternut uniform as well who need, because they, we are all men of God. So if you would treat those two, you are free to leave at any time you so desire. You are not a captive. You're not a POW. So you can leave whenever you do. Well, the head of the Sanitation Commission, when he got back to uh, Washington, he wrote up a report. And in that report, he talked about Jackson's army. And he gave, you know, he was giving good military information. He said they're about 32,000 strong from what I saw. And he said equally, not equally, but distributed or throughout the ranks, he said, I counted over 3,000 black men. And he said they were with the same uniform, with the same equipment. And he said, yes, some of them were, uh, you know, a wagon. They drove wagons. Some of them did others. But he said they were equally distributed throughout the various units. of, And he specifically mentioned over 3,000 black men. Well, 
today's modern historian, when they can't kick that thing in the bushes, they will say that, oh, well, I, I read one uh, <clears throat> Marxist who tried to explain it. And he said, well, what happened was, uh, yes, they were carrying arms, and that was because they were slaves, and their masters told them, carry these guns. Well, you know, if I've got a man that I've got as a slave, I don't believe I'm going to hand him my gun. Probably not. No. Especially if it's loaded. Yeah. That, yeah. That, or he has access then, to ammo. Yeah, then exactly. The, exactly. The other thing that happened was is one of the sculptors, and it's at, it's actually still there in uh, Washington. Of course, they'll probably tear it down before long. But one of the sculptors who put up quite a few uh, memorials to the Civil War was actually a graduate of Virginia Military Institute. And in a couple of his sculptures, he actually has blacks in uniform. And, of course, and I don't know if I've told you guys this story or even if you'd be interested in hearing it, but my son, uh, when he was at Virginia Military Institute, actually went, he and several others, on a special permit, went to the Green Cemetery in Lexington, Virginia, which is all black. And there is a headstone there of one Levi Miller from Rockbridge oh. County, Virginia, who was a decorated Confederate soldier. Mm -hmm. And there is a an Confederate battle flag on his headstone. Mm, mm. I think you told me about this, but yeah, good stuff. You know, that, that brings up the, uh, again, the, the North versus South kind of thing, where in the North, even during the Civil War, you had uh, black soldiers, but they were segregated. And normally mm -hmm. you had white officers over the, over the black uh, uh, enlisted men. And uh, yeah. I believe there was one particular unit i saw a movie about it a while ago from uh, i believe they were from massachusetts 54. but uh, yeah the 54th yeah. regiment uh, massachusetts volunteers and um, actually by the war's end 16 black soldiers have been awarded the medal of honor however oh. you know again it was a segregated unit and then when you know of course the north prevailed and as we go into world war one even World War II, you have you don't have integrated units. You had you know the T Tuskegee Airmen, you know the, the Red Tails. I mean those guys were phenomenal pilots. Um, they were loved by the by the B seventeen pilots because they were the only ones that really get in and mix it up with the Germans. But they were you know it wasn't until really, I think maybe in uh, to a point in. Um, uh, uh, Korea, but then in Vietnam, where, where blacks and whites were in the same units together in the current U.S. military. So, you know, the South was really ahead of the ball game uh, back in back in the day, and we we went backwards when when the you know when the Union took over. You know, I you I wouldn't also undervalue the how how high a skill it is. To be a good teamster, I mean, my grandfather was one, and he used to 
take a team of horses from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, all the way up to Green Bay, that's probably about 75 miles. And on that journey, you've got to be able to take care of your horses. You've got to be able to move that freight efficiently over difficult terrain and stuff. These guys were the 18-wheelers of their day. Absolutely, and they, and they did a heck of a job. Mm-hmm. Well, are you, are any of you gentlemen familiar with Patrick Claiborne? C-L-E-B-U-R-N-E. No. Not me, no. Okay, Patrick Claiborne was a general, a Confederate general, and he was from Helena, Arkansas. He was actually from Ireland, but he had migrated to Arkansas. And he became known as, if you get into military strategy, which is something I just absolutely love, he became, he became known as the Stonewall of the West. Mm. Well, at the outbreak of the war, Patrick Claiborne advocated and sent petitions to Robert E. Lee and to Jefferson Davis repeatedly to free the black man and let him be in uniform to fight for his property and for his home, just like the white man. Well, they the uh, Confederacy kind of left it up to the states. You know, there was a complete artillery unit formed out of New Orleans that was all black. And look at the people. You can go through the ranks. Uh, you're probably not going to find it on the Internet anymore. But you can go through the uh, Confederate pensions that were granted and look at the number of black men who got Confederate pensions. Mm, mm. And that's something else they don't want to talk about. And, and that, that to me is, this is the thing that really bothers me, guys. And that is the fact of by not covering this with honesty and veracity, we are depriving a lot of black men and black families of their true history and their heritage. And the honor mm-hmm. they're due. And yeah. why, yeah. And when, it, when it comes to heroes, Levi Miller at Gettysburg was offered a complete, he was captured at Gettysburg and was offered a pardon if he would denounce the South and come over to the North, and he said, no, I will not denounce my home. And, you know, why aren't, why aren't we taught about that when it comes to be, you know, uh, Black History Month? Why don't we talk about those people just as well as we do the others? Yeah. It's a, perver- it's a perversion of history. It should be called Black yeah. Revisionist History Month. Yeah, it kind of uh, is. Or Marxist, is. Marxist Revisionist History Month. There you go. Yeah, that too. That too. Real quick, Jim, I just sent you a link to that podcast uh, and Castbox oh, okay. and Skype. If you cool. could link, uh, put that in there for me, I appreciate it. Yeah, let me find it here. Really good podcast, folks. Really good. Continue. I'm just looking for that thing. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, we got you. Uh you know, one of the things that I loved about uh, this was this was a good study for me. 
is about General Patrick Claiborne. And, and because he fought for the Confederacy, his thoughts and his beliefs and his passion are forever going to be uh, into the uh, trash pile of history. But I want you to think, think about one thing that Patrick Claiborne said and compare that with today where we are. And Patrick Claiborne said in 1864, surrender means that the history of this heroic struggle will be written by our enemy, that our youth will be trained by northern school teachers, will learn from northern school books their version of the war, will be impressed by all the influences of history and education to regard our gallant dead as traitors and our maimed veterans as fit subjects for derision, unquote. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty much what happened. And Patrick Claiborne died on the field of battle 30 yards ahead of his men as a major general. Wow. Wow. Well, he was out I don't front. see much of that anymore. No. Well, no actually leading in his back. men into battle. He led his men, and before that charge started, he turned to one of his subordinates that day at Franklin, Tennessee, and he said, there will be a lot of sad homes in Arkansas tonight. Mm -hmm. But he was 30 yards in advance. They found his body 30 yards in advance of the next Confederate soldier in a charge upon the enemy works at Franklin. Mm -mm -mm. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. <clears throat> Truly. And this is why you don't see that much anymore. <laughs> and turkeys that, are, that have all the rank, you know, well, I'm too important to die early and die in battle. We'll let all the little guys yeah. die in battle. Yeah, yeah. well, guys, yeah. remember remember Desert Storm 1 back in, what was it, 91? Yeah, there are about uh, when Schwarzkopf, who was the hero, Stormin' Norman, Stormin' Norman was actually three stories deep in the ground. Mm -hmm. I heard that. How in the hell do you lead anybody underground? It'd be a little difficult, I would think. But the press, he was the hero. Yeah. That's what we're told. And Americans fell right in for it. Mm -mm -mm. Well, as you said, Mike, we have the moral high ground, right? Oh, yes. We've we've always assumed the moral high ground. <laughs> so, somebody was storming for Norman except Norman. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Another West Pointer. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, An inferior guys, uh, breed. Well, you, uh, somebody made the mistake of bringing up uh, the Civil War here. You got you get my blood up on that one, guys. We can tell that that is your uh, that is your uh, pressure point. <laughs> well, it makes for uh, more content in the show that way. Well, oh, guys, I, I have my uh, <laughs> ulterior motives. <laughs> I mean, guys, why why do we have the Fifteenth Amendment? The which one? 15th? 15th. Why do we have the 15th Amendment? That's my question for the group today. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, 
That's a good question. Yeah, damn sure it is. Woo, boy. Look it up and read it, Jim. I'm in the Mama process. Okay, I ask good questions. Uh, I'm, I'm nothing like you, Michael. <laughs> here's 14, 14, 15. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate reg- legislation. So that's basically, let's see, that uh, unfortunately doesn't say when that one was enacted, but um, I'm betting it was after the Civil War. <laughs> Well, uh, the thir- the 13th Amendment was after the Civil War. The 14th Amendment was after yep. the Civil War. The 15th would yep. have to be after the Civil War. Oh, you you would think. But the I'm way they thinking, do things, you never know. <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm thinking 1868, Jim. Sounds about right. March, it says March 30th, 1870 in my thing. Hmm. Oh, wow. Okay, so it was that far along. Well, okay, wow. but... Why did we have the 15th Amendment? Why, well, was it necess- yeah. why was it necessary to have the 15th Amendment? Well, after the, uh, the war and the slaves were freed, I'm still thinking. My gears are turning slowly and I need some lube on them. <laughs> Okay, guys, well, uh, the, thir- the 13th Amendment made all blacks free and citizens. Mm-hmm. Why did you have to have an amendment uh, in 1870 to make them vote? Able to vote. Probably because there was a lot of uh, resistance, especially in the North, I would bet, uh, of allowing, you know, having black people voting. Because there was still a lot of uh, prejudice. Well, yeah. Jim, in, you my, it, in my you book, it calls them non-freeholders. Hmm. Well, a rose by any other name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you, uh, Jim, you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, and with the Reconstruction Act of 1867, all black males in the South were given the right to vote. The problem was, is that two years later in the North, very few northern states allowed the black to vote, even the free blacks. And they were probably putting heavy-duty restrictions on them if they mm-hmm. allowed it at all. Poll tax, Poll taxes, you, you know, tests yes. and all that kind of stuff. Or you had to put in, in, in Illinois and Indiana, a free black man had to post a $1,000 bond to enter the states. And who the hell had $1,000 in Back then, that's, that might as well have been a million back, you know. Yeah. Good yeah. grief. But all those southern boys are racist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or so they would like you to believe. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you let Marx write your history books and Marx teach in your schools and universities. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah, that's it. That's what you get. That's what you get. Man. But back to the Tuskegee experiment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. World War II came along. 
Mm-hmm. And they instituted the draft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of the black males in Alabama who were part of the study were draft exempt. Now that's interesting. Yeah, I don't they remember that. Didn't want them spreading wow. it. <laughs> Not only that, so, they wanted to keep them under heel. I think that was yes. more of the case. They wanted to keep their hands on them. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's right, Robert. Didn't want the lab rats running all over the world. No. Yeah. Which couldn't be done if they were drafted. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, exactly. I see that. Yeah. But what did they do with the. Uh, when they drafted blacks to fight in World War II and they tested them for syphilis, where did they send them? I would imagine. Uh, Was it military? Doctors in... Uh, good question. If they were drafted and they were diagnosed with syphilis, they were oh, sent, they sent to Alabama home. to be part of the test. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. If, if, if they lived in New York or whatever, they would get sent down there. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see where you're going. Got it, got it, got it. Do, do you know if that happens very often? Was there a lot of that? I, group? I have no figures on that, Robert. Okay, okay. Now, were they uh, maintained and kept in the military and just stationed in Alabama? Or... They would almost no. have to be, weren't they? No, they were not members of the military. How'd they get them to go to Alabama uh, willingly? <laughs> How do you get them to put on a mask? <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. by the way, that reminds me of a little meme I just posted in my Telegram channel. Guy looking at it says, don't worry about the kids peeing in the pool. They have bathing suits on. He says, how does that even work? Like a mask. (laughs) Like a mask. Yeah. Works just as well. Anyway, (laughs) I digress. Well, guys, let me tell you about my latest project, if I may. Go right ahead. Yes, you may. All right. Uh, You uh, folks are familiar. We talked about them last week about Samuel Bryan. Mm -hmm. Sentinel. The Sentinel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, he wrote 18 essays against the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And then he wrote six more after the Constitution was ratified. Mm-hmm. He wrote six more. Well, then they came out with the Bill of Rights, and he wrote 10 Ooh. essays opposing the Bill of Rights. Total of 34 Ooh. now. Well, those 10 essays have not been republished since 1789. Did you find them? Jim, I did. Oh my gosh, where? I don't give away my sources, Robert. Uh, (laughs) He'll tell you, but then he's got to kill you. Old habits. uh, here's, Here's the funny thing about it is, is that the only way I could get these was photocopies of the newspapers they appeared in. Oh, wow. Because nobody had ever published them. As I said earlier. So I set about looking at these uh, hard to read, because if you guys have read any of the script back then, the S's look like F's and the F's look like S's. And Mm -hmm. 
and the yeah. words, yeah. the spelling of the words is different from what we have today. Right. So I sat down over the past two days and I have copied into PDF form mm. 25 and 26. Okay, 26 is over 3,000 words long. Wow. Jeez. That's an essay. Well, one of the first things I had to do was I had to disable my spell check. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> because every time I would write something, you know, like in those days, the word control was spelled C-O-N-T-R-O-U-L. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I wanted to make these documents as historically accurate as possible. So going through them, spell check kept changing everything. Right. So that is uh, <laughs> that as that is my new project. So uh, gentlemen, uh, bear with me. I only have eight more to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that, that's a helpful project, boy. And the fact that you even got your mitts on to begin with is, is pretty damn remarkable. Well, no kidding. It's uh, a lot it of people. A lot of people are unfamiliar with the fact that over the Anti-Federalists were not mentioned by anyone in the Marxist educational industry for over a hundred years. From the late 1830s to 1950, no one ever mentioned an Anti-Federalist in any educational pursuit or history book. And now we know why. Well, you know, one of the things I have read through, uh, you know, the first 24, and Jim and Robert, uh, did I not send you guys PDF of those two? No. I mean, if you did, I haven't seen it. Okay. Well, those are the first 24. I will make sure that you get them. Please do. But the first 24... Uh, are just remarkable to look at the insight this man had. And I had mm-hmm. read through those 24 multiple times, mm-hmm. but I learned something about him and I learned something about myself over the last three days. And that is going through these, reading the sentences, then typing them into a document and making sure my, uh, Grammar is correct of that era, making sure my uh, punctuation is correct for that era. I got an entirely different feel on this. Doing, you know, sometimes when we read, our minds just our minds just let us skip over stuff. But if you're doing it a sentence at a time and writing it out and then going back and double checking to make sure you got it right, it Take somehow it sticks better. Yeah. And so, but then this morning I got the shock of my life. I found out that after he wrote those 10, he wrote 67 more. Jeez. Which have never been published. Wow. 
And did you get a hold of those? I have not. Oh, bummer. <laughs> but you know where to look, clearly. Yeah. I haven't stopped. Oh, I'm sure I you have, won't. I have found... A hound dog I've, on the hunt. <laughs> uh, you know, my friend up in uh, northwest Arkansas, Mike Clifford, he laughed at me because a few, uh, maybe a year or so ago, I was looking for a uh, document, a presentation that had been given by historian Merrill Jensen. Now, Merrill Jensen was one of the last historians, American historians, who actually wrote the truth. The Marxists hadn't completely controlled education uh, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, although they were working hard at it. So there it was. And I was looking for this speech he gave at Pacific University in 1936. And I was looking for it, and I was trying and trying and trying to find it. It's only 18 pages long. And the people who had it wouldn't sell it to me. Mm. But I finally found it. So I have that as well. All 18 pages of that one. And one of the reasons I do this, gentlemen, is a simple reason. It sure ain't making me no money. No. But one of, one, of the re, one of the reasons I do this... So it won't be lost. ...is so that it won't be... You know, when you stop and think about things weren't mentioned for 100 years... Yeah. They wanted it to go away. And I'm going to do every damn thing I can to make sure it doesn't go away. Amen. Mm-hmm. So I found this one I was telling you about, the Articles of Confederation, a reinterpretation by Merrill Jensen. I found that in the Pacific Historical Review of June of 1937. And like I said, there are some places that had it that wouldn't even sell it. So, mm. American Americans, your history is being buried. Yep. The truth of your history, what you read today by anyone with the PhD letters after their name is Marxist drivel. Mm-hmm. Yep. What do you expect from a post-hole digger? And, unfortunately... Exactly. Guys, our our Civil War history is going the same way. Man. I think it's pretty much been that way since day one. It, the majority of it had to be covered up, and they just had to play the free-to-slave card uh, to make it more palatable to um, we Americans. And for the most part, that's worked. Robert? Yes, sir. As, uh, not that it makes any difference what color your skin is, but as a black man, does it bother you? And I know that we first got starting, started talking years ago by email or what have you. Mm-hmm. Has it bothered you that your actual history has been covered up like this? Generally, whenever the truth is buried, it bothers me, but specifically this, absolutely. But I was in the majority uh, in my younger years. I, I believe the dribble that uh, the, the war between the states was fought through free slaves, 
in the South. I bought it up just like most everybody else did. It wasn't until I started to age and started to think outside the box, so to speak, that uh, that made less and less sense to me. And the, the, the truth had to be much more complex and complicated. So when I started thinking those terms, then I started to open up my uh, brain and my thinking and look elsewhere. Well, and then when I started reading got, about Abe Lincoln, that, sorry, that, that really set it up. Well, you guys know how, how I am for questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if the Civil War misnamed it was not the civil war because there were not there were not two factions fighting for the same government the south didn't want anything to do with the northern government but if in that war in that war as we look at it if the north's intentions had been and they controlled congress because the south was gone they controlled congress in 1861 when the war started, why wasn't their first act the freeing of the slaves? Yeah, they could have started in New York and New Jersey. <laughs> well, have you guys ever heard of uh, John C. Fremont? Yeah. Uh-uh. No. Yeah. Okay, well, John C. Fremont was an avowed Marxist. John C. Fremont was the first presidential candidate of the Republican Party in 1856. General under the command of the Union Army. When John C. Fremont took his troops into Missouri, his first official act was he freed all the slaves in Missouri. His order was quickly countermanded by President Abraham Lincoln. The great emancipator. Yes, and Lincoln said, no, you can't, I want you to rescind that order. Fremont refused to rescind, rescind the order. Lincoln rescinded the order with executive order and transferred Fremont to Virginia. Another question, and these are the simple ones. I can get into some complicated ones if you want to. In 1864, there was an election coming about, and Abraham Lincoln was worried about his chances. Do either of you gentlemen, without, or any of you folks listening, without looking it up, do you know who Lincoln's opponent was in 1864? Oh, man. Mm-mm. No, not a clue. Ah, there was this guy named George McClellan. And McClellan, uh, had been, McClellan, McClellan had been one of Lincoln's top generals. Yeah, he sure was. That he had relieved twice. Lincoln was <laughs> worried about the election, so Lincoln unconstitutionally created two new states to make sure that he got enough electoral votes to win. The first state that he created, Robert, is the one where you reside. It's called Nevada. I was about to say Nevada, yeah. Okay, why was it unconstitutional for him to make Nevada a state? Didn't have the population. 
Didn't have the population. Yes, sir. Ding, 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 ding. Correct answer. Mm. Mm. Okay. Didn't have the required 30,000 residents. Ah. Okay, so he unconstitutionally creates, plus he needed silver out of Nevada. Talk about a twofer. So, and there was, uh, what is the farthest west battle of the Civil War, gentlemen? Was it in Nevada? Nope. Hmm. You got me. Picacho Peak in Arizona. Oh, wow. Way out Ooh. there. Yeah. Well, uh, a lot of people don't know that the state of the, not the state, but the, uh, <laughs> you know, Arizona actually flew a Confederate flag over their government for a few months. Didn't know that either. The hmm. territory of Arizona. Well, they sent forces to cut off a shipment of silver out of Nevada that was headed for Washington, and they sent a group of forces, and they had a battle at Picacho Peak, which shows you how dumb Americans are, because Picacho in Spanish is peak. So uh, they call it Picacho Peak, so they sent it to Peak Peak. To, uh, and so they, they had a, you know, and they, today, guys, they have, uh, you know, reenactments of that battle. But that if you've is been out to, Go ahead, sir. If, you, if you've been out to Picacho Peak, it looks like a couple of double horns out there, kind of. It's a really weird-looking terrain feature. And um, if anyone didn't know. Hmm. Well, it is. Ma Michael, didn't they also punish uh, Arizona for doing that by... Uh, Taking a chunk of the state, which I think is the uh, Las Vegas area, and giving it to Nevada? Yes, that is correct. And also, uh, Brent, uh, have you? I walked all the way with my son and my daughter and my wife. We walked all the way to the very crest of Picacho Peak. What a view. And you're right, it does look like a set of devil horns. But. Uh, Anyway, that takes care of Nevada, and then Lincoln made another state, West Virginia. Uh, yes. Why is why was the state of West Virginia unconstitutional? It was just a county, wasn't it? Uh, look at Article Four, Section Four. Yeah, I don't know if you know, Michael, but we have a guy out here by the name of Paul Preston who's trying to split the state, and he's using uh, West Virginia as the precedence. <laughs> that would be well, one. That's, uh, but you can make it work. West Virginia could have become a state had it been approved by the legislature of the state of Virginia. But hmm. Virginia was still in the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what Paul says. He's, he says that uh, he's going to need first the legislature to agree, and yeah. then he's going to need Congress and the president. No way that's well, going to happen. <laughs> actually, actually, he doesn't need the Congress and the president. He is abiding by the Constitution of the United States if 
the legislature of the state approves it. It doesn't need approval by the U.S. government. But everybody but you, will put. You on wouldn't need state legislature approval. You, the state legislature has to agree. But the most egregious thing about bringing West Virginia in in 1864 is Lincoln brought it in as a slave state. Right. Sure. Sure. A, a year, a full year after the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm. Once again, the great emancipator strikes. Well, let's not forget, and guys, here is something I am exceedingly proud of. And that is an article I wrote in the year 2003. And I'm trying to find that article for you now because my uh, website is a mess because I'm trying to create a new website. Um, But there is a group or a a website called unitednativeamerica.com. And in 2003, I wrote an article titled The Great Emancipator and the American Indian, or I reversed it, The American Indian and the Great Emancipator. Well, the wonderful folks at uh, unitednativeamerica.com put that article up in early 2003 and we have as last time I looked it was still there so they have had my article up now for 18 years wow that's cool and I I, as I said that is one of my most proud accomplishments guys that one meant a lot to me and uh But let's not forget that the great Abraham Lincoln, the emancipator, he ordered the largest mass execution of people of color in our American history. Santusu. Santisu. Santisu, yeah. Yeah. Forget, hell, who knew that besides the... uh, a few select people. I didn't know it until you brought to my attention. I'm sorry, Robert. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> my, Michael, it, it's also my understanding that uh, there was no way in, uh, for the Nevada Constitution to, to be delivered to Washington by couriers. So what they did is there was the first telegraph transfer at the time, and it cost something like $60,000 to get it there on time. <laughs> Oh, well, guys, I just checked at the UnitedNativeAmerica.com, and it's still there. Whoa. And it was, uh, in, in just a few weeks, it will be 19 years, because it was published on January the 9th of 2003. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, uh, as a, again, I'm very proud of that. But your comment, here, here's what I believe, looking at documents about what you just spoke to, about the... Uh, constitution being sent to uh, by telegraph. I think that's another great hoax by the U.S. government because the documents I found in the Library of Congress and the National Archives point to the fact that that uh, that the Nevada Constitution was written by uh, Lincoln's cabinet. The people in Nevada had little to nothing to do with that Constitution. 
Thank you. That's why I asked the questions, so I can get mm-hmm. a real answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. guys, yep, here's yep. the thing, and I hope you, you guys will indulge me here. But I have felt for many years, and I have asked the question in some of my prayers, I have said, God, why did you lead me to the National Archives in 1984? And why did you create a a curiosity in my mind to start looking through these things and start going, oh, holy crap, that's not what I was taught. So uh, I, I do not believe things happen just randomly. I believe there's a reason for all of it. And thank you for indulging indulging me that thought. I have a sure. feeling that he knew you were the man for the job, Michael. Yeah, uh, some people just couldn't do that. So, but but you could. So, yeah. It, it, uh... Well, it was. Uh, I, I I just had it. I remember the first day when I found some stuff, and one of them was a speech by Patrick Henry that I'd never seen, and uh, you know my 12 years of, uh, you know, uh, elementary education through high school and then into college, which uh, took together, uh, you know, about 16, 17 years total. And I, my, I remember my first question looking at that speech by Patrick Henry was, why the hell didn't I know this? Why didn't, why didn't somebody tell me this? All this education, nobody knew this existed? But I also also remember walking home that day, going to my apartment on Wilson Boulevard, where from my apartment I could look directly at the Lincoln Memorial and the Potomac River. And I remember sitting down, and I was really flummoxed, folks. I mean, I was really flummoxed. Do I want to follow this? Do I want to follow this trail? What else have I been taught is not true? And so, yeah, uh, I, I had a I had an inner uh, mental battle of, do, why don't I just leave this alone? It's going to be a lot more comfortable. And then I just couldn't do it. It, it just it just wasn't me. So uh, I appreciate uh, guys you allowing me to indulge those thoughts. Thank you. Oh, no worries. Thank you, brother. No problem. Mike, Michael, there, uh, this story I know, um, it was in a, a paper article, a really obscure little paper that does historical articles on California. Even though there wasn't a battle fought, fought out here, it certainly looks like there was a lot of espionage because the capital of California, I guess at the time, was Placerville, where I live. And uh, the story goes that a, uh, a very, very polished southern gentleman came to town and uh, he got to know the community quite well and the people liked him. And uh, at night he b- played uh, cards and during the day he, uh, he educated uh, the town's uh, finest young girls, uh, the, the money people. And the way the story goes is there's a place called Fort Jim just outside of Placerville. And he went out there one night and never came back. 
And the speculation is that he was a Southerner storing guns there to start a revolt in Northern California at, at the capital, Placerville. Mm. Hmm. Ah, very wow. interesting. Gentlemen, mm. uh, let me, I remember uh, you talk about the Nevada State Constitution, uh, Robert, and every time I think about that, I think about a meeting I had in 2015 in uh, right outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. And I had breakfast with Cliven Bundy and his secretary mm. and one of his sons. And our good friend that you've heard on some of my uh, programs, Dale Williams from out there, used to be on the, uh, the radio, uh, talk radio, uh, mm -hmm. K-Talk Radio in Salt Lake City. Uh, he kind of set up the meeting. And so I'm sitting there with Dale and with uh, Cliven Bundy, his son, and his secretary. And we're talking about what happened with him at the Bundy Ranch. And he said, I do not blame the federal government for what happened out here. I blame my state government for not backing me up, for not standing behind me. And I said, with all due respect, sir, have you read the Nevada Constitution? And he said, oh, yes, I, I've read the Nevada Constitution. And I said, well, if you've read the Nevada Constitution, Mr. Bundy, it kind of goes against what you just said. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he said, well, how so? And I said, well, you know, Section 2 of the Nevada Constitution says the following, which is totally, it contradicts itself. Now, I'll read it very quickly, and you folks tell me how it contradicts itself. Section 2, purpose of government, paramount allegiance to the United States. All political power is inherent in the people. Yeah, right. Government is instituted for the protection, security, and benefit of the people, and they have the right to alter or reform the same whenever the public good may require it. Okay. Take that as point one. Now, here's point two. But the paramount allegiance of every citizen is due to the federal government in the exercise of all of its constitutional powers as the same have been or may be defined by the Supreme Court of the United States. And no power exists in the people of this or any other state of the federal union to dissolve their connection therewith or perform any act tending to impair, subvert, or resist the supreme authority of the government of the United States. Wow. Spells it out. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, uh, when I got into that and when I was looking at that at the National Archives and Library of Congress, I kept looking at how this constitution was written and the national archives show that this constitutional, that this uh, constitution of the state of Nevada wasn't written in Nevada at all. Nope. Now they may have been transmitted this document to sign, but you know, I, I've wondered why that those people who were the victims, and they were victims on January the 6th, 
why no attorney has brought up this very simple statement. All political power is inherent in the people. Lincoln was also after the Comstock load, if memory serves me. Yes, that would be yeah. correct. He was that. Yeah. He, he wanted anything to do with uh, anything that was going to fund the government. Guys, here's a good question for you. Uh, and Robert, uh, I've already told you this answer. How many states in the South did Lincoln appear on the ballot? In 1860. One and zero. That's what I was thinking. One and zero. Zero is the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I needed a few more senators and states. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Can you uh, say you know, fraud? Guys, uh, well, I believe uh, I had a good friend, a former mayor of uh, Alma, Arkansas sent me an email a couple of days ago, and he said, was the 1864 election fraudulent? And I thought that was a hell, I thought that was a hell of a question. I said, it, and I said, well, Mayor, it was an election, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Michael, can you, can you confirm this, too, that when Lincoln ran, I, I read that uh, he had a war chest back then of like $7 million and his opponent had $5,000. Yeah, that's and it, about it was the Eastern bankers who pay, were paying it. Oh, yes. It was the Eastern money uh, bankers that were uh, financing him uh, beginning at the uh, convention in 1860, the Republican yeah. convention. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, uh, in 1839, uh, the uh, constant, uh, the, uh, Communist Party of the United States had a convention in Chicago. What was their masthead? Mm. Donkey. <laughs> Elephant by any chance? No, nah, it was a picture of Abraham Lincoln. A donkey. <laughs> well, they say Marx had a regular editorial in, in one of the major New York magazines. I mean, he did thousands and thousands of articles in, in this country. Well, let me uh, kind of help you out with that a little bit, uh, uh, and you're correct. But uh, Karl Marx uh, had a very close friend in Europe in the 18, from 1845, 46, 47, while they were trying to push Marxism and socialism in Europe. Well, in 1848, a lot of the governments got tired of it, and they kicked them out. Well, Marx's good buddy in uh back in Europe, was a guy by the name of Charles A. Dana. D-A-N-A. -A. Well, so they moved to America, and of course, Charles A. Dana becomes the editor for the New York Tribune, where over 3,000 of Karl Marx's editorials were presented in the New York Tribune. It is documented that one of the first things Lincoln wanted every morning in the White House was his copy of the New York Tribune. Now, Horace Greeley was the owner of the New York Tribune. Charles A. Dana, Charles A. Dana was its editor until 1862. So in 1862, Charles A. Dana moved from 
the New York Tribune as editor to be the assistant secretary of war under Abraham Lincoln. Holy crap. Now documents in documents in the national archives will show that between Stanton and Dana, they filtered all of the information that was sent to Lincoln. Lincoln only got what Stanton and Charles A. Dana approved. Mm. Charles A. Dana basically ran the War Department from 62 to 65. He was not even a United States citizen. Boy, oh boy. Just like today. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. Some things never change, huh? Just like Obama. Yeah. We've got yeah, illegal aliens in any, Congress. Any better, does it? Just doesn't no. get any better. No, only worse. No. Nothing new under yeah. the sun. Yeah, but well, the big thing is, gentlemen, don't try to tell boobas. They get real mad at you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is easier to fool a man than it is to tell him that he's been fooled. Samuel Langhorn Lemon. Yep, good old Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. And never and never pick a fight with a man who orders dr- ink by the barrel. The barrel. <laughs> exactly, another great comment. Oh, uh, so gentlemen, uh, from my. Uh, most limited repertoire. Are there any other questions that I might be able to help you with? <laughs> you, you mean ask you a question you can't answer? I don't think that's possible. The well hasn't like, dried up yet. Late, <laughs> oh, as an aside, Jim, I like your picture with the uh, 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 cure for the pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a blister pack with a 9 millimeter round in it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pedophilia is the disease, then this is the prescription and the cure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you know, wow. we found Josh Duggar uh, guilty of uh, uh, pedophilia or child molestation, uh, whatever it was. Mm-mm. You like the yeah. one above it? If you want to take my freedom, make damn sure you're as passionate about taking it as I am about keeping it. About defending it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't see that one. Yeah. That's just though. So. Gentlemen. <laughs> Michael, when I when I was a when I was a junior in high school, I was in the in the public library and I was reading uh, some um, Birch Society literature. And a liberal librarian comes up to me and says, "You can't read that in my library." And I told her, "I says, geez, last time I looked at my dad's tax bill, this is the People's Library, my dad's library, not yours." But the good thing she did is she spurred me on to read every damn one of the stuff that I could find <laughs> at the time on the society. And yeah. I was like, holy crap, is this stuff true? And I sort of put it in escrow, come to yeah. find every damn bit of it was true about how we financed all of the wars, uh, especially yeah. uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. And, you know, and then I. So when you said, uh, are you really surprised about some of this stuff? Are you angry? Well, I sort of already knew, you know, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Mike, did you say you had another question? 
Oh, I do. I do. I have one for you. Ask away. Uh, how many of Lincoln's generals were members of, were Marxists and were not citizens of the United States? Woo. I probably will bet a bunch of them. That's a toughie. Don't know. Uh, 14. That would be a bunch. Holy fright. That would be a bunch. Non-citizen Marxists. Yes. How many uh, many generals were there in total, Michael? Oh, my goodness. I have no idea, but there were a lot of brevet brigadier generals near the end of the war. That would be almost impossible to keep up with. Kind of like today, top-heavy military. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it could have been easily a couple dozen, then, wouldn't you say? Oh, beyond it. Hundreds. <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, you know, uh, have you gentlemen heard about the rape of Athens, Alabama? We talked about that, yes, but but. Oh, okay, I thought we had. I thought we had. That, uh, uh, <laughs> that gentleman's name, uh, <laughs> he took on the name Turpin. Yeah. But uh, his his name was Turgeyevich, and he was a Russian. Yeah. And he, he committed war he committed war crimes against civilians in uh, Athens, Alabama, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. many war crimes. He was tried for his war crimes by General Rosecrans and found guilty, and mm-hmm. was kicked out of the army. The next day, Abraham Lincoln brought him back, made him a brigadier general, <laughs> and sent him on his was- way. Yeah, what was he before, like a captain or a major or something? He was a colonel. Oh, okay. Wow, that's a pretty good jump. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. Hmm. Yeah, the, the book I'm reading now, The Problem with Lincoln by Thomas C. Lorenzo, which is a very good book, I highly recommend it. It talked about, uh, we history tells us that... Um, William Tecumseh's sermon set fire to Atlanta or as much as he could on his way to Savannah. But history doesn't say a lot about the fact that uh, Phil Sheridan and Ulysses Grant was just as bad. They wanted to burn, rape, rob, and pillage the South just like uh, uh, Tecumseh Sherman did. So they were just as guilty. Just well, as don't guilty. forget, uh, one of the things we overlook, we look at the uh, march to the sea by Sherman, mm-hmm. but we forget about mm-hmm. what was done in the uh, Shenandoah Valley. Mm. The Shenandoah Valley, uh, it was sent, I mean, they burned everything, killed all the cattle. They did, uh, and uh, that was when, uh, uh, let's see, who was it? I was trying to think of the general who sent to Lincoln and said, if a crow flies over the Shenandoah Valley, valley, he will have to take his lunch with him. Yeah. Well, Mike, I, uh, I had the great opportunity was uh, when I was out in New Fork News to take some canoeing trips on the Shenandoah Valley, you know, for many a mile. And uh, what a beautiful place. Oh, it's gorgeous, isn't it? Oh, yeah. What a beautiful. And that was known as the breadbasket of the Confederacy. Really? Oh. Yes, that's where most of the food supplies came from, the Shenandoah Valley. And if you, if you are a political, uh, not political, if you are a military junkie, uh, especially military strategy, to study the uh, tactics and strategy of Stonewall Jackson in the Shenandoah Valley in 1862 is just absolutely unreal. 
because Jackson took that aforementioned army of about 30,000 with 3,000 blacks, and he went up and down the Shenandoah Valley, opposed by a Union force of three armies by Banks, uh, Shields, and Fremont that total that outnumbered him over th sometimes three or four to one. His strategies were just unreal. He kicked their butt all up and down that valley. Washington became so concerned about how successful he was in the Shenandoah Valley in 1862 that at nighttime they'd pull up the planks on the bridges because they were afraid Jackson was going to march into Washington, D.C. Too bad he didn't. And so Shenandoah Valley had to be defended because it was such an uh, important part. Uh, yes. South as far as food and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm, makes sense now. Makes sense. Yeah. Hey, they didn't tear up uh, that place um, over in, um, I forgot the name of the town, but the guy that um, um, I guess was the forerunner of International Harvester, his uh, plantation, they didn't destroy it. Mm. Well, uh, uh, do you guys know how Arlington got started as a national cemetery? Wasn't that uh, Robert E. Lee's front yard or something? Or his that was or his something? property. Or that his was his rose garden. That yeah. was his entire was property his yeah. was yeah. Arlington. And yeah. after the war started, because uh, Lee had turned down command of the Union Army, because he turned it down, after that, they started taking the dead uh, who were killed in battle, and they took them to bury them on his property. Yep. Wow. As Talk an insult. Middle, middle a slap in the face. Yeah. 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 And that was the insult, because uh, Robert E. Lee was offered command before the war started by Montgomery Blair. And Montgomery Blair was uh, the emissary from Lincoln, and he offered, uh, he called Robert E. Lee to his home and offered him command of the Northern Army. And uh, that Robert E. Lee told him, he said, look, uh, you know, Mr. Blair, I can see my house from here. I'm just right across the Potomac. That's my home. But that, and then Lee said, but that is my country. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, At least he was uh, well, that is something that he was very much so. And, yeah. uh, yeah. Hey, uh, uh, Jim, uh, if I send you the link to that article that's been at the, uh, uh, United Native America.com, uh, would you put it on the, uh, on the page, please, sir? Sure. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. Is that the one about the Santee Sioux? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I definitely want to read that. As one of the greatest comments, uh, Major General John Pope, of the, uh, he was the one who went to Minnesota and executed those people, and he was a sniveling bastard to start with. But uh, <laughs> one of the one of the greatest comments that I've ever heard come back was when uh, Pope was given command at one time of the Union Army, and he sent a letter to Lincoln, and he said, rest assured, <clears throat> pardon me, rest assured, Mr. President, 
my headquarters will be in the saddle. <laughs> and so Stonewall Jackson wrote to, to, to Jefferson Davis and he said, oh, well, he said, isn't that just like a Yankee general? He's got his head where his ass ought to be. <laughs> what about Custer? Uh, was he a Marxist or just a egomaniac? Well, he was an egomaniac. Uh, one of the things, one of the great stories I like about there on the Shenandoah River was at one time uh, uh, he thought he would be a really smart guy, and so he captured a Confederate soldier right there in, uh, I'm trying to think of the town. Uh, anyway, it's right there in the Shenandoah Valley, but uh, uh, he captured a Union soldier, and he hanged him, hung him, and he put a notice on his chest that said, this is what we do with sniveling Confederate scum. The next day when he came back to the same site, there were three Yankees hanging from the same tree with a sign that had been left by Stonewall Jackson, I'll trade you three for one. How long you want to do this? <laughs> That's rich. Does he still hold the record for most demerits at uh, West Point? Custer? Uh, you know, he finished, he's kind of like John McCain. Uh, we always wonder how John McCain ended up to be a naval aviator because they claim they only take the top one to three percent. Uh, John McCain uh, graduated second from the bottom at the Naval Academy and destroyed at least three aircraft while he was being trained to be a uh, pilot. And then he also was very possibly the culprit who set the fire on the USS Forrestal. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, had yeah. something to do with his daddy, I think. Oh, yeah, and he's a always count on nepotism. <laughs> and his grandfather. Who, okay, I who heard he did... was off that carrier in like half an hour because they were going to kill him. Kill him. <laughs> right. Too, too was, bad they didn't. Who was the uh, Who was the person who covered up the USS Liberty for LBJ? Wasn't that McCain? That was McCain's father. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's that's who I meant. The Admiral, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but how many people uh, are aware that at the Traybok Lake in Hanoi, there is a monument to John McCain? Yep. I've seen pictures of it. Now that's one statue I ought to tear down. Well, can you imagine building a monument to Hirohito at uh, Pearl Harbor? Yeah, that, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't laugh. That might be coming soon. Well, McCain was one of the MVPs for the for the Vietnamese. Yeah. Has anyone, has anyone found out uh, McCain's uh, daughters over in Vietnam? Mm -mm. Uh, no, uh, the one thing I remember about that, Brent, which was, uh, I remember quite a bit was have, uh, any, are any of you gentlemen, uh, familiar with the name of Colonel Laird Gutterson? No, we talked about that, I think, but go ahead and, uh, retell. Well, uh, Hey Robert, if we, uh, talked on here about everything you and I've talked about on the phone, we'd be <laughs> on here until next Tuesday. 
Uh, yeah, we might. We might. <laughs> uh, Colonel Laird Gutterson was an Air Force pilot, uh, and he was in captivity in North Vietnam for about six years. And uh, he was a, uh, he had first uh, been a pilot in the Korean War, then he was a pilot in the Vietnam War, and uh, he was the SRO, the senior ranking officer at the Hanoi Hilton. Mm. And one day when uh, I used to, I hate golf, uh, I, you know, I called it cow pasture pool, but I used to go, <laughs> I used to go with uh, uh, the colonel just to talk to him, and I would drive the cart. And one day at Ravenswood Golf Course in Tucson, Arizona, uh, when we finished, I carried his golf clubs to his car. He had a beautiful, at the time, uh, Oldsmobile Delta, Delta 88, and uh, was putting his golf clubs away. And he took out a, an album, and he showed me. He said, look at this picture. And it was a picture of John McCain hugging, a, obviously, a Vietnamese. And uh, Colonel Gutterson said, do you know the name of the Vietnamese he's that he is embracing in a full bear hug? And I said, no, sir, I'm not aware. And he said, that is Colonel Bowie Tin. And if you want to spell that, gentleman? it's B-U-I-T-I-N. You can find these pictures on the Internet if they haven't removed them. And John McCain was in a full bear hug with him. And Colonel Gutterson said, you know, that son of a bitch, talking about Bowie Tin, he said he was in charge of the torture of the mm -hmm. Americans. He said, I know of at least four or five American military men that SOB killed. Wow. He, he said, now why would you, you might have to shake his hand for official reasons, but why would you hug him? And, uh, well, you would be a traitor. And Brent, uh, Colonel Gutterson told me that uh, McCain fathered children in Vietnam. He said they called him the prince. The guards called him the prince. And he told me, he said, I'm not really sure what happened, but I can tell you this. He disappeared for almost a year. And he said, no one saw him. He said, I'm not sure where they took him, what they did with him. But he said, I do know that he had women he was pretty well treated like a prince. That's why they called him the prince. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. He was having a come to kami sabbatical. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, make a kami for mommy. Yeah. I would say his embracing uh, ten was akin to Winston Smith embracing his torturer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, great analogy there, Brent. But but yeah. not to put John McCain in the light of uh, Winston Smith. He's oh, head and shoulders no. above. Yeah. Well, let's. Uh, I was just looking through that article, uh, uh, Jim, and uh, I remember uh, Lincoln assigned General John Pope to quell the uprising in Minnesota, and he announced at the beginning of his campaign, and I quote. It is my purpose to utterly exterminate the Sioux. They are to be treated as maniacs or wild beasts, and by no means as people with whom treaties or compromise can be made. Unquote. Man. Uh, 
Mm. There were a bunch of narcissists, superiority conflict bastards that ran, came in this country. But I'll tell you what. Uh, you yeah. gentlemen, are you gentlemen aware of a, gen a man of color who was a general in the Confederate Army? No. 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 Say no. it. Ain't no. Uh, <laughs> well, his, his name was Stan Wadi, W-A-T-I-E. He was Cherokee. Hmm. And he, he was one of the last Confederates to surrender, surrendered right along the Arkansas River near Fort Smith. Wow. Oh, wow. Got me there. Hmm. Did you have you gentlemen ever heard of Thomas's Legion? Nope. Mm -hmm. Do you know what a legion was in the war? Very large military group, I imagine. Well, a legion was unique because a legion had uh, cavalry, artillery, and infantry all in the same mm. unit. Mm. So, uh, and these were almost all predominantly Cherokees. Wow. And at a great battle in North Carolina, on the North Carolina-Tennessee border, <coughs> there, was a, there was a battle between uh, Thomas's Legion and the, uh, a unit from Indiana. And during that battle, the chief of the Cherokee tribe's son, uh, Junaluska, was killed in the battle as he was charging a Yankee position. And so this incensed the Cherokees so much that they overran the Union position and then promptly scalped them all. So they took their, they took their scalps back to their headquarters, and Thomas made them put all of the uh, scalps into a burlap bag and take them and give them back to the Union commander. Another another very neat story from the era. Have you sent that article yet, Mike? I haven't seen it come through yet. I haven't yet. Okay. I'm trying to figure out how to do it, Jim. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I would suppose that Lake uh, Junaluska up in uh, North Carolina is named for him. Probably. You would be exactly correct, Brent. Lake yep. Junaluska was married. For, was named for the chief. In the lower right corner of your window, you should see a little chat button. If you click that, that'll open it up and you can drop the article in there. Well, I tell people over and over, Jim, that <laughs> I... Short in your seat. That uh, when it comes to uh, technology, every time I sit, at a, sit down at a laptop, there's a short between the keyboard and my seat. Right. Thanks, Robert. Well, uh, the other thing, <laughs> if you want to just send it to me in an email, I can get it from there and, and drop it in, too. Okay, that'll probably be my best way of doing that because I'm trying to figure out how to get it off the internet right now. <laughs> uh, is there a link in the uh, the top uh, browser address bar? Well, I'm looking for that. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Let me see that. Well, while uh, you're doing that, since we're running out of time, I will mention that uh, Mike has his well. 
he's working on his website, Rebel Man, Man, rebelmadman.com. So just write Easy that down and keep say. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> First day with my new lips, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, he also has the uh, Rebel Madman on uh, Telegram along with Constitutional Fraud and lots of great information there. And uh, tomorrow at noon Eastern time, he'll be on uh, freedomslips.com uh, Studio A with uh, Dare to Think Out Loud. And then Sunday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern time, he'll be at the same location, freedomslips.com Studio A for Addicted to Our Own Destruction. And uh, every show is a good one. So mm-hmm. be there or be square. Well, thanks, Jim. And yep. tomorrow, Cal and I are going to uh, bring about uh, the fraud uh, of that uh, surrounded the creation of the Constitution and the fact that the Federalists kept telling everybody, well, we're deep in debt. You need to pay these bills off. You need to know, oh, you need to pay all of these things. We need a new form of government. We can't do the articles. And these were the same people who had swindled the United States government out of $17 million during the war. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to bring you a little evidence for that one. Great American patriots. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's plenty of evidence of that. Uh, oh, big time guys. <laughs> founding fathers. Yes. What they may have, uh, Michael. Yeah, what they found was a way to enrich themselves. And I've asked this question. I've asked this question over and over again. How can you prove Lysander Spooner wrong when over 150 years ago, he said, this Constitution has either authorized what we see today or it's been powerless to prevent it. Now, how the hell do you prove him wrong? I don't think you can. Hey, Mike, uh, did you get a forwarded uh, email? Um, I sent it, but um, it was uh, about stopthecrime.com uh, or .net, and it was um, on the razor blades and the uh, vaccines. I know that's not germane to what we're talking about, but that would have been a way to get in contact with me. Okay, Brent. I'll do my best. And uh, one of the things uh, that, uh, and I'll do it very quickly, I know we're running out of time, but when I was looking at these new essays by uh, Sentinel or Samuel Bryan, he talked about something that is hardly ever, if you know, just not discussed. And he said, well, we had all of our state governments in 1787. We had our state governments, which we had to pay for the people through taxes. He said, why would we want to create another government even larger that we had to pay for, too? So we had to pay for two governments. Yeah. Hmm. State income taxes, federal income taxes. That's an excellent question. Why? And he, uh, this uh, second essay, number 26, I mean, he went into just some kind of detail about how much, because In the Washington administration, guys, and think about this. This was 1789. In the Washington administration alone, there are over 1,000 paid bureaucrats. 
those were additional expenses tacked onto the people, and they said we have to create this constitution because we're in debt. So we're going to put you over your ass in debt, so you'll have something else to pay. <laughs> it, it was a it was a big co country, so they needed a lot of seeds so that they could spread it around and get everywhere. Well, uh, you know uh, that's exactly what Sentinel alluded to. Uh, Jim, did you get the link to that article? Yes, I did, and it is posted in the chat room, and I'm also putting it on my Telegram channel. Thank you, sir. Yep. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. yep. Thank you. And again, so gentlemen, for to be uh, to be uh, have an article featured at uh, UnitedNativeAmerica.com for 19 years makes me extremely proud. I can you imagine. So they had political graft even back then. No. <laughs> hey, Mike, on your uh, Telegram channels, uh, uh, do you have that set up only for one-way communication? Because on mine, it says mute and unmute, and I can't type anything or ask anything. Yeah, when well, it says mute, you're, you're stopping his feed from coming to you, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Well, Brent... The thing of it is, I didn't set up either of those two channels for the aforementioned reason that I can't, <laughs> I'm technologically challenged. I will check with the person who put those two channels together for me, and I will ask them if we can make them two-way. That's fair. Because I have been, on my Facebook, I have been putting up uh, Constitution quizzes. And if you really want to get a lot of people angry at you, uh, challenge them to take a test on the Constitution, especially people who are in public office. <laughs> Which you have done a time or two. Send it to Biden. <laughs> uh, He'd fail putting his name on it. Uh, it it's incredible, but it, it's just amazing that when you ask people, hey, would you like to take a test on the Constitution? Uh-uh. <laughs> Senator Alan Dershowitz. Man, I'll tell you what. Mike, I was just, uh, I, I haven't mentioned it with you, but I, I, on my other shows I have, I just finished reading uh, Alan Dershowitz's new book, The Case for Vaccine Mandates. Oh, God. You talk about a worthless waste of time. <laughs> it was it was interesting in the fact that the guy took a, a basically moronic, uh, totally negative and incorrect thesis and build upon it. It's like stacking poop as high as you can. Uh, and uh, not once did he have any either scientific or constitutional background for anything he had to say, which really didn't surprise me because it doesn't exist. But, um, you know, he did. I don't even know if he have, has ever read um uh jacobson v massachusetts and that's what was the basis for his whole argument uh well the government can mandate vaccines no <laughs> you just have to pay a five dollar fine if you don't want to take it and you even got that wrong um but uh it's just unbelievable stuff on the other hand the uh the other book that goes along with it the case for vaccine mandates but or against them by uh, heck and lively who works with judy mikovitz is a really good book and very well documented so anyway, that's it. I ran out of time here. Uh, we've got about uh, 10 seconds for the music starts. want to thank you guys, uh, Robert and Michael, uh, for being here as usual. 
and thank Robert, you, again, thank you for hooking us up so long ago. It's been one, a wonderful ride, and we continue yeah, to yeah. look forward to more and more and more. So really? uh, yeah. I will say thanks again. Take care of your bodies because it's the only place you have to live, and we will see you all live again on Monday. Have a great weekend, and take care, and God bless. Lord willing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. <laughs>